Today's episode is brought to you by the Arabian Horse Foundation. The Arabian Horse Foundation seeks to promote youth, equine research, and educational programs through their scholarships and grant opportunities. Visit thearabianhorsefoundation.org to donate and learn more. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Arabian Horse Connection, the official podcast of the Arabian Horse Association. Tune in every other week as we discuss industry trends, news, and all things Arabian horses. We are here to honor the versatility, heritage, and future of the Arabian horse, connecting you to this legendary breed. I'm your host, Katie Feitner. Join me as we delve into the world of Arabian horses. Today's guest is an expert in the field of equine genetics and has collaborated on monumental studies involving lavender full syndrome, equine coat color, and Arabian ancestry. Currently, she resides at the University of Florida, where she runs the Brooks Equine Genetics Lab. There is no doubt you won't learn a thing or two about equine genetics after listening to this episode. Please welcome Dr. Samantha Brooks. Thank you so much for um, being on our podcast. Sure, not a problem. We've got some exciting stuff. So we can go ahead and get started. Um, So first, would you be able to just introduce yourself to our audience, tell them a little bit about what you do in the equine industry, what your career is, and how you got started? That's a long story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Hello, and thank you for inviting me to speak to you today. Um, We certainly have a lot of exciting things going on. Uh, My name is Samantha Brooks. I am an associate professor of equine physiology and genetics here at UF. Sort of an unusual career path. I I am a uh, horsewoman born and raised in Kentucky. So, you know, I like to say that my career is genetics, but my love for horses is written in my DNA. I just, that's just how I am, Um, always have been. Um, So I tried my best to find a way to to combine that into a career. Um, My my undergraduate degree is in agricultural biotechnology and I thought I was headed to vet school and then discovered that um, genetics really captured my interest. So stayed on there at the University of Kentucky at the Gluck uh, Research Institute to do a PhD in veterinary sciences focused on genetics. Um, After that, I did six years uh, at Cornell University, uh, had a wonderful time there, but it was very cold <laughs> and there weren't a lot of horses. So I moved down to Florida about six years ago. Our research program has always been focused on uh, the horse. So we do work in a few other exotic hoofstock species and other uh, critters here and there. We have some projects on things like honeybees that we work on collaboratively. And uh, we focus on using genomic tools to help to improve the health, welfare, and performance of the horse. There's really a lot of um, promising uh, research areas in that field right now. We have a lot of genomic tools that are coming out of biomedical applications. And uh, the horse has a lot of unique biology. So it's a, it's a, a, a very exciting scientific area to be in. Sometimes difficult to fund, but very exciting scientifically. I feel like this happens a lot. It happened to me as well in school. We kind of just segue and take a right turn and you do something that you totally didn't think you would be doing. So that's really awesome that you found genetics. Yeah, I I had to do an undergraduate research project 
uh, ag biotech, you know, I, I, I did well enough in genetics class. I thought I should probably stick with this a little bit, but it was, it was primarily a pre-veterinary track. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had to do an undergraduate research project. And when I started doing uh, research, I realized that, you know, this was, was going to capture my interest a lot better uh, than sort of the business and client management aspects of being a veterinarian. That's a huge part of the job that I think a lot of our, our pre-vet students we have now don't necessarily appreciate mm -hmm. you. You have to have some pretty diverse skills to be a very successful veterinarian. So, so now you run um, the Brooks Equine Genetics Lab at University of Florida. So can you tell, um, tell me a little bit about what that's like and the kind of projects that you work on and some of your favorite parts of being in that position? Well, right now it's quite different. Uh, we were on a complete research shutdown at UF for a short while and we're only partially back up to speed. So um, my, my lab itself is housed in the UF Genetics Institute, which is a, a cross interdepartmental, even cross college group at UF with everyone working in diverse areas, but focused at genetics. So it provides a really exciting environment for us to work in. You know, my students get to interact with, I've got one lab on one side of me that works in coral and coral reefs. And on the other side is particularly interested in sorghum and bioenergy. So they, they really get to interact with um, some, some very diverse groups of scientists, which gives us new perspectives of looking at the problems that we have. Um, but right now we're almost entirely virtual. We do a lot of computational biology in the day-to-day, -day, uh, which actually turned out to be useful for us because that meant that we could become sort of a virtual lab pretty quickly. But we focus on strictly on research. You know, we work with uh, when we deploy something like uh, a genetic test for diseases. So we have sort of three main areas that we work in. One of those areas is primarily uh, focused on mapping of traits and uh, diseases that are a, of importance to the industry. So a veterinarian or a horse owner may give us a call and say, oh, I had this terrible sick foal, or oh, I have this unique color pattern. I think it's genetic, I'd like to learn more. And if we can get enough people together and get enough samples and get enough funding, we'll try to map that trait or disease to provide uh, genetic markers that can be used for diagnostic testing. So in in that, in that realm of, of what we do, um, we interact quite a bit with our, our equine industry. Another segment of what we focus on is, is using gene expression to better understand the processes that are occurring in a disease. So we have a large project in collaboration with Hannah Galantino Homer at the New Bolton Center, University of Pennsylvania, where we're studying how those genes are used so that we can get a better understanding of what happens during the initiation of laminitis. So mm -hmm. laminitis is a particularly devastating uh, disease for the, the horse and um, is really tough to, um, to learn about because horses are pretty unique. You know, we've got other like cattle, um, but the hoof structure there is, is quite different. So um, we, we work in a different area of genomics in, in those types of partnerships to, to use gene expression itself to learn more about what's going on. And then we have a, a third area where we're interested in sort of the overall structure and function of the genome. So mm -hmm. um, we've done some resequenced genomes on many horses, but are trying to wrap up some genome assemblies on the Arabian camel and the Arabian oryx as part of our three-part project focused on um, some desert hoofstock funded by the Qatar National Research Foundation. So 
there we ask more basic science questions about how a genome works. But we do have a wet lab space and, you know, um, we do sample processing and testing there. Uh, but purely, purely on the research side. Once we develop a test, um, we try to move that out into um, the horse industry and get people to use it. And sometimes that's where the bigger challenges are encountered is that um, folks often don't know what's available to them. And mm -hmm. we, have to, we do our best to partner with our extension service and um, with our, our educational arms to get that, you know, groups like yourself doing podcasts mm -hmm. to, to get that information out to folks so they can uh, start to use it. And, and sometimes there's, there's just more at play than, than just um, the, the, uh, the genetics that we need to mm -hmm. understand. And so then it's a matter of working with the industry to figure out how they can incorporate these tools in a practical manner. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they may know about it, but it's just not fitting into their management program. And so then we have to really work to iron out the creases. <laughs> right. I just feel like you're, what you do at your lab with exploring the genetics is really part of the root of how you can sort of discover and plan to combat some of these, you know, disorders and these issues within horses so that the horse industry can take the research that you've done and create a product or a service so that, you know, you can help those horses with laminitis or, um, you know, your research about lavender foal syndrome or something like that, how you can prevent those, those types of things from occurring in the breed. So that's really cool that you focus so, you solely focus on the genetics because I feel like that's kind of the root of some of these issues, this, these disorders. Yeah, it, it often is certainly the root and it's enough. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we really rely, we rely heavily on our collaborators and our partnerships um, because, you know, some of these data sets are really enormous and mm -hmm. it takes a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of samples need to be gathered, things like that. So we try to do what we do. Mm -hmm. And when we, when we have a new test or a new understanding, um, then it's, we try to try to push that out to the, to the industry and our partners and say, okay, now what are you going to do with it? <laughs> yeah, you provide the you provide the research and the tools, and then you kind of present it, and then it's up to the industry to take take what they will with it. You know, right. So I kind of want to segue a little bit into um, your research, specifically with um, Arabian horses. I know that your project um, regarding lavender foal syndrome was um, really cool. And I wanted to, <laughs> wondered if you could explain a little bit about what lavender foal syndrome is, for those that may not know, um, what breeds are affected, and is it just limited, is it primarily within the Arabian breed, or is it prominent within other breeds as well? Well, lavender foal syndrome is a um, congenital condition, so from birth you'll see the symptoms, caused by a, what we later discovered was a single mutation in a myosin gene. So myosins are important for trafficking things throughout cells. It's recessive, which means you have to have two copies of that gene to see the visible effect. So we all have um, uh, two possible copies of our autosomal genes, we're going to forget the X and the Y for a while, they're nothing but trouble, right? <laughs> but among our autosomal genes, those that, those that are um, 
do more mundane tasks, the majority of the genome, we have two copies of every gene. And it's just like having a spare tire. That way, when one is broken, you, you still have another one that can take over a lot of the biological functions. And lavender foal works very much this way. That particular point mutation is on one of those copies of, genes, of the gene. And in a horse who carries just one copy, the second copy is able to take over all the important cellular functions. And so the horse is still overtly healthy. However, if that horse happens to inherit two copies of the lavender foal version of the gene, one from mom and one from dad, they are really very, very sick individuals. So it got the term lavender foal because the foals exhibit a diluted coat color that um, has sort of a silvery cast to it that someone astutely described as lavender. They're not, they're not bright like My Little Pony lavender, but they, they have a, 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 a subtle dilution to their, to their coat. More importantly though, they have a very profound neurological deficit. So the, these foals are typically not able to stand or even um, uh, uh, lift their heads and rest upright on their chest. Uh, they don't nurse. Um, they often experience what looks like seizures, but actually now that we know the cause of the disease, it's probably more of a reflexive repetitive action. Um, so they're very, very sick and often die, if not, if not shortly after birth from being unable to stand and nurse, then they may get shipped to a referral hospital and spend uh, a significant amount of time in intensive care before it's discovered what their actual diagnosis is. There, there's, no way, there's no treatment for lavender fall, you know, I, I mentioned it's a, the gene is responsible for, for trafficking uh, things along the cell. So in a pigment cell, it's responsible for trafficking packages of pigment. So when that's interrupted, you get the silvery color because the pigment didn't go where it needed to. In the brain, mm -hmm. it's important for trafficking of neurotransmitters. Um, so when the neurotransmitters don't get where they need to go, then you have neurological uh, deficits. Um, Lavender foal itself, so, so we had a, 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 a study that we completed when I was still up at Cornell with my collaborator, Dr. Doug Anzac. Uh, he had been banking samples of lavender foals for I think about seven years by the time I arrived there. And uh, I got there just in time for some hard work from the horse genome workshop to produce the first uh, chip. So a SNP chip, it has 50,000 markers on it versus if you get your DNA done for parentage, it's usually around 20 markers. Mm -hmm. So from 20 to 50,000, that, that was a big boost in our ability to do research. So Lavender Foal turned out to be the first published application of that SNP chip, just with good timing. Um, so we got lucky and used that chip very effectively to, to map the gene responsible for Lavender Foal and produced a test very, very quickly. Doesn't always happen that fast, but mm -hmm. it worked out well in this case. Now that was very fortunate because remember it's recessive. So for the horse owner, until your mare has produced a sick foal, a foal affected with lavender foal, you have no way of knowing that she carries that particular disease. She's going to be completely healthy on the outside. Mm -hmm. Once she has produced a lavender foal, then you know for certain that both she and the sire are carriers. Um, it's sort of proven through breeding, but that is a lot of risk. Um, mm -hmm. And just one of these sick foals, if you do take them for intensive care, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars of veterinary bills. So 
um, that's a bit late. You would rather know the status, say, um, when you're thinking about which colt to geld or when you're purchasing bird mares <laughs> mm -hmm. so that you can plan out in advance and avoid both the financial and the emotional cost mm -hmm. of producing one of these foals. So the availability of a test there was particularly important for breeders. But with the test, we also were able to study where else um, the allele is found. And it is very often in the Arabian horse, but it is not exclusive to the Arabian horse. Um, it is in a few other breeds, in particular the tracaner is coming fresh to my mind there. So it, the tracaner, it may be that um, this particular allele is older than those two breeds, or it could also be that uh, a prominent Arabian that was used to improve the, the lightness or endurance of the tracaner brought that allele along with them. So we can't, we can't make the assumption um, that just because you, you have another breed of horse, particularly in something like saddlebreds, we've seen it occasionally in a saddlebred, that mm -hmm. it, it is impossible for it to have lavender foal. Mm -hmm. I suspect, you know, it's, it's hard to say without doing extensive studies, but the Arabian has been used to improve so many breeds of horse that, um, and it would bring both the good things and the not so good things along with it, just like, mm -hmm. just like everyone else. So one thing I tell my, my genetic students and my, my equine health students is that, you know, we, we tend to give these recessive alleles sort of a, a bad name and, and, and feel like it's kind of shameful if you turn up and you have a horse or a stallion who, lo and behold, you discover later on that he had some disease. But the truth of it is we all have uh, recessive disease alleles. In mm -hmm. humans, it's estimated to be that we each carry about 40 recessive diseases. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, the different... Yeah, right. So, and in horses, it's probably not too different in horses, honestly, because our level of diversity, depending on what population you're looking at, our level of diversity is pretty similar. Our genome size is about the same. So the difference is, is the pattern of, of breeding. And so, um, it, you know, recessive alleles thrive on homozygosity. So when you narrow your program to aim at a particular goal, yes, you're going to produce more foals that fit the type or um, whatever the, the um, aim of your goal is, but you're also mm -hmm. going to reduce variability and that can bring to light all of those recessive alleles that have just always been there. Um, mm -hmm. Occasionally you get spontaneous diseases, but that's not usually the case. Usually the mm -hmm. situation is this is an allele that, that has always existed in the population. It, it just wasn't uncovered until it was at a high enough frequency that two carriers met one another and had an affected individual. That's so interesting um, when you spoke about the recessive alleles and how we all carry them. It's just interesting to me that, you know, and I think if you take everything up face value, you have a perfectly healthy horse and then mm -hmm. you breed it with, and it's just chance, you breed it with a stallion that might also be a carrier and then it produces this product that is not as desirable. Just think that's really interesting about you know how that works genetically as well. Absolutely, and you know we'll never discover all of the the problem alleles. And sometimes what's a problem for one person is actually very valuable in another population or another setting. Mm -hmm. So, um, but we try to target the things that are creating significant health and welfare issues, uh, mm -hmm. and you know quality of life issues, and are an economic problem for the industry. So another example might be something called PSSM in the quarter horse, which is a muscle disease. It, mm -hmm. it alters the way they store sugars. 
and it's at a very high frequency in the quarter horse and homozygotes they have they have uh, problems with their muscles right uh, manageable mm -hmm. to some degree not lethal like lavender full mm -hmm. but what they've discovered is that in heavy draft horses like the Percheron, that particular allele is is present in something like 70 to 80 percent of individuals wow i'm trying to pull stats off the top of my head so at 70 to 80 percent that's a lot and we never really recognized it as a disease in heavy draft horses only mm -hmm. in athletic quarter horses but we think that the different way they store sugars if you were a heavy draft horse plowing a field you know up in idaho after a long winter Mm -hmm. that having that different way of storing sugars could be an advantage. It might have helped protect you against starvation over a long winter. Mm -hmm. But if you're a quarter horse being fed a very high sugar diet and then being asked to go out and say run barrels on a Thursday night and then sit in a stall for a week, mm -hmm. it's a problem. So there's an interaction, even in that very simple genetic trait controlled by a single allele, there is an environmental and genetic background effect that creates a different context. So what mm -hmm. can be a disease in one situation can be an asset in another. I don't necessarily think that's true for lavender foal, but you know what? Mm -hmm. Mother nature likes to prove me wrong all the time. So <laughs> we may we may ultimately discover that carriers actually have like some some different aspect in their behavior <laughs> that is actually beneficial to the Arabian. And so we've selected to make that allele a higher frequency mm -hmm. without knowing what we were selecting. Um, yeah, I don't try to predict the future too much because <laughs> it, I always find surprises. <laughs> right. It's, it's just, it's also really interesting because all of those factors relate to environment. And like you were talking about the draft horses versus the quarter horses, maybe having that certain trait as an advantage. It's really interesting. I feel like, you know, we don't always correlate those two things um, together. And it makes a lot of sense, you know. Exactly. So, so we try. To, I try to advise folks to manage the bad parts that we know about, and not to panic about things. You know, mm -hmm. the presence of a recessive disease is not is not rationale for extermination. Mm -hmm. um, it's just knowledge is power. Learn what you can. Make educated decisions. Think long term. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, horses have a long generation interval and small businesses tend to have a short generation interval. Mm -hmm. So some folks are worried about the immediate financial viability of their operations, but you know, horses are, they are a long-term commitment. So mm -hmm. try to think long-term and set goals and move towards those at a, um, a on a timeline that is uh, feasible and practical. Because mm -hmm. if you try to set goals that are never going to be achievable, then there's no point in even starting off. So I wanted to uh, ask a little bit more about the specifics of this molecular diagnostic test for lavender pole syndrome. And mm -hmm. um, is this something that breeders can do at home? How does it really work? Well, you know, actually, strictly speaking, if they had a little bit of equipment, they could do it at home. Um, I will say that we've been trying to do science by remote and it has included some interesting DNA experiments, but um, <laughs> I don't recommend, <laughs> I don't recommend that. That's just how we've been trying to manage getting, getting, we had some honors projects that needed to be completed. And so we made mobile labs, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the, the, the good thing about molecular diagnostics and genetics molecular genetic diagnostics is that the samples that you can collect are so simple you don't necessarily need a veterinarian you can gather them yourself that helps to keep costs down because once you have to uh, pay for a veterinarian's travel and the equipment to draw blood 
it does increase the cost uh, quite a bit. It's not it's not a a um, roadblock for all horse owners, but for some, it can make the difference between testing one foal or testing ten foals or not testing at all. So, for a horse owner, it's as simple as pulling uh, a small swatch of either either mane or tail hair. I tend to prefer tail actually because the hairs are thicker. Um, but if you you know if you have a long gorgeous tail on your horse you've been fighting with for years, then then don't sacrifice the tail. You can go for the mane, maybe right by the bridle path or nobody will notice, right? Mm -hmm. And the swatch of hair we need, you know, we can do an entire genome sequence from about 10 hairs. Um, I like to have more than that, just in case. So we say we say up to 50 hairs, a swatch smaller than a, about, the, about a pencil's width of hair mm -hmm. is a, a wealth of material for us. We're very pleased when we get a pencil's width of hair. Um, when that gets to the lab, um, uh, we will carefully cut off the hair bulb portion because it has most of the cells clinging to it. It has more DNA. Then we use some detergent and salt solutions to clean out the DNA itself. Uh, then in the lab, we would amplify it. This is the part that takes a special machine. It's, it's called a thermocycler, but it's kind of like a Xerox machine for DNA. Mm. So we target that to just the piece we want. We make lots of copies. And then in the case of lavender foal, one of the easiest ways to study it is we just use a particular enzyme that's like a targeted pair of scissors that will cut when it sees lavender foal and will not cut when it sees the normal uh, average horse sequence. So when we look at that on a gel or on a, it's a, it's, well, it's literally, it looks like jello, but it separates mm -hmm. out the pieces. We know what sizes we expect. Then we can, then we can determine if the lavender foal allele is there or not. It's all pretty low tech. The average mm -hmm. kitchen could do it. You just need that special um, DNA Xerox machine, the thermocycler. Gadgets. That's but easy. For most horse owners, it is. Oh, piece yeah. of cake. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> once, we, once we have it designed, it is a piece of cake. But um, yeah, for the average horse owner, it's as simple as pulling a swatch of hair, putting it on a nice, clean piece of paper. Uh, in the lab, we use acid-free paper, but it doesn't have to be. We try to keep things for decades, and it will keep that mm -hmm. way. Um, in an air-conditioned room, not even in the refrigerator, we, we can keep samples for a very long time. I had a, a colleague in Brazil who had samples that were 30 years old that were still good. So wow. um, my career is not quite that long yet, but we'll see how long I can keep what I started with. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. You could um, always pull it for later if you need to do additional testing. So that's really interesting. Exactly. And this is where a lot of the power exists in our registries. I try to explain to them that it's their data, it's their samples. It's very, very powerful for them. So if they keep, they keep maintain the records on the pedigrees and the hair samples are so simple to keep if they started mm -hmm. archiving hair um, as they gather things to potentially send for parentage testing, then they have mm -hmm. an enormous, uh, very valuable archive. You know, we archive a lot here in my lab but um, I can't always foresee everything that's coming down the road. So I, mm -hmm. I always advise registries to carefully guard, think about collecting their own samples because it's so simple and mm -hmm. to carefully guard the, the data that they produce and remember mm -hmm. what an enormous resource that is for creating tools that will benefit their membership. That's exactly what we do at AHA with, um, you know, parentage testing and registering. And we have our own database that we use for hair and it is definitely useful. It's come in handy quite a few times. So I wanted to chat a little bit more about your relationship with the Arabian Horse Foundation, actually. Um, and I know that you've worked with them closely on a few projects over the years. And I just wanted to kind of get some insight into how the Arabian Horse Foundation has made a difference, how they've helped you, things like that. Uh, well, it's a 
It's always exciting when we have a group like the Arabian Horse Foundation that has has an interest and an investment in protecting the health and well-being of of their um, the guard of the breed of horse that they they are guardians of in many ways, um, and and have the the um, foresight I think to look at some some more challenging areas of of science. Um, mm-hmm. Funding in the horse is pretty tough. You know, USDA, I've gotten several reviews, many, many reviews back that will tell me that the horse is not an agricultural species, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, a little, a little tough to swallow. And then I go to NSF or NIH and they say, no, no, this is agriculture. Send it to USDA. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're in an awkward, awkward position and the horse can't always be a model, right? So we need, we need folks who are really dedicated and ready to put some effort and resources behind protecting the health and well-being of their horses. So that's where a group like AHF is really um, key. Uh, in particular, in our in our studies, they have been a go-to group who has been able to just inject the little things that we need when we've fallen a bit short. You know, we, we've had, mm-hmm. um, they certainly helped us a little bit going back all the way to Lavender Foal. They have um, supported us in some of our studies of metabolic syndrome and laminitis in the Arabian horse. We have a couple, mm-hmm. three now publications on metabolic syndrome and laminitis in the horse, and each one has had a, a little benefit from from some help from the Arabian Horse Foundation. And then most recently, I was just the other day looking at a whole genome sequence from uh, an Arabian horse that has juvenile idiopathic epilepsy. And Arabian Horse Foundation actually supported creating that genome sequence. So we, we leveraged samples from other projects to try to support as much of the work as we could. Mm-hmm. And then that, that little last keystone piece where I couldn't find any other route to be able to put that together, AHF was able to come through and help us get that type of a genome. Now, science is hugely expensive, <laughs> um, but I never want to to discredit at all how so, how important some of the smaller um, supporting agencies are because, you know, it's it's that last that last keystone piece that makes the whole thing stand. So. Um, they've come through at just the right time for a lot of our projects. Otherwise, to be honest, without a supporting community of horse owners, uh, without a supportive registry, and without a supportive group like AHF, I wouldn't be able to work in a breed like the Arabian horse. Um, Mm -hmm. It just, you have to have that network, both of horse owners willing to to submit samples from their horses and spend their time and effort. Um, Yeah, you you know, we, uh, our horse owners, it's always been amazing, especially I have some colleagues who work on dog genetics and you know dog owners love their dogs too but they were always amazed at the level of participation we get you know when I when I put out a call if I put out a web page or if I start picking up the phone and talking to horse owners and especially Mm -hmm. Arabian horse owners and say you know we're working on this project we really could use samples they are so welcoming so welcoming um at a much higher rate than I would say than other than other critters sometimes anecdotally speaking so um huge shout out to our horse owners because they really come come through I could never keep a huge experimental colony of horses right it's not feasible mm-hmm. it's not ethical not scientifically viable because they mm-hmm. you know have a long generation interval and I would never capture all that diversity so um that's that's always key is, is having having a a body of 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 horse owners and a and a a supportive registry, and then a supportive group like AHF that can can uh, come through when they're really needed. Mm-hmm. They're a great organization. They are always there for 
anything you need, whether it's scholarships, anything like that, anything to promote our youth, research, they are a great resource for us. And we are definitely thankful to have them as well. And I have to say, like, to comment on, um, you know, those horse owners, those Arabian horse owners that are willing mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, volunteer their horses as a subject. I, I really think that comes from, we just have such a great breed and our owners are so passionate about the horse and, you know, research and science and making, making our horse industry better. I think we just have some really great people. So that's really awesome that they are so willing to volunteer their horses and be involved as much as they can. That's great to hear. Absolutely. I can't agree more. (laughs) So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about just your job in general. Do you have like a favorite part of the research process? (laughs) Um, Do you, um, you know, what do you like? Do you like data collection, proposing a project? Do you have a favorite, um, something about your job? (laughs) Oh boy, uh, about my job. Well, you know what's what's interesting? I think a lot of people imagine scientists as sort of being in white lab coats, sitting in a in a sterile room somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, hunched over a bench for hours and hours. Um, you know, my job is a, is a little different from that. Uh, I, I do quite often do field work uh, all over the world. So you'll see me out in, in boots and jeans and uh, <laughs> walking through pastures, who knows where after, <laughs> after whatever samples we need. Um, and, and then, you know, I do quite a bit of outreaches as, as well to help to, to take what we've learned in the lab and bring it back out to the community. So it's very much um, uh, an integrative kind of position, not, not at all one where I'm always in the air conditioned lab. Now we'll mm-hmm. do stints sometimes where I don't get to leave the lab, but, but it is nice to have the opportunity to go out and meet some of those fantastic horse people and, and get out and meet some of those horses too. Cause yeah, mm-hmm. I, that's a vice I just can't kick. I, right. I always have to meet the horses. And I'm more likely to remember the horse's name than the person's name, terribly enough. It's, it's awful. Um, but, you know, on a, on a day-to-day, um, I, I am a, a, a terrible um, grant writer. <laughs> I do it a lot. I do it a whole lot. I do it a whole lot. But I, I, I'm always a dreamer is my problem, I think. Um, so I'm always looking way too ambitiously. But um, – and I didn't, I didn't, I don't think the writing part comes naturally to me. I really like data analysis. Mm-hmm. I like to be in there next to my students extracting DNA and uh, working through the data analysis and making the discoveries. That's, that, that's the, that's the part that really keeps me going. And mm-hmm. majority of my job now running my own lab is definitely always writing grants, always writing more grants, uh, always working on papers and manuscripts and uh, publications. And I do a lot of teaching as well. So I don't get as much time mm-hmm. in the lab as I used to. But um, that's what got me hooked. It, it truly was. And I, I still get a chance to get in there sometimes. <laughs> that's really cool. Well, you know, if you're never a dreamer, you never get the big things done. That's what I think, honestly. So ambition is maybe, is right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my <laughs> problem is I can't bring my exactly. I can't bring mm-hmm. myself to write the boring uh, the boring grants that are guaranteed wins. I just can't bring myself to do it. I always have to write something that's an exciting, go big or go home prospect. And yeah. that don't, it doesn't always fly with review boards. They like to play it safe. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Mm. <laughs> so um, I'm interested in learning a little bit more about um, the study that you were involved in with genome diversity and the origin of the Arabian. Um, can you provide a little bit of background on this study and what it's kind of about? 
Wow, this was a huge effort with uh, many people involved over multiple continents. Um, it was originally funded by the Qatar National Research Foundation as part of their big education initiative and they wanted to build uh, scientific capacity there in, in Qatar. And of course, um, as a, a nation with a strong uh, cultural tie to the Arabian horse, they were particularly keen to see us do some work in, in that breed and it meshed well with what we were doing at the time. You know, we had been working a lot in Lavender Full and it raised a lot of questions about mm -hmm. where where do these horses come from? What is their level of genomic diversity? I mean, there are a lot of people who, who were really pretty negative and say, oh, all those Arabians are really inbred. And um, mm -hmm. we look at our data and, and we thought, really, is that true? Um, so we figured we'd, we'd launch this project and um, see what we could we could discover. This was another collaboration with Dr. Doug Anzac at Cornell, as well as Dr. Andy Clark. And then on the Cutter, the Doha side, um, we, we had some collaborators there as well, and Dr. Joel Malik and, and a couple other faculty there at Weill Cornell, and the, some who have moved on indeed. Um, so it took about eight years to put that together. It could, uh, we presented the just under 400 samples in the paper, but we gathered nearly twice that. Uh, we just had to carefully balance our sample when we did the analysis because we tried to gather everything we could and then we balanced it out for things that were uh, to make things more of an equal representation around the, the globe. But we started with a very fundamental question. You know, here is a breed of horse that has a very long uh, historical record, perhaps longer than any other breed of horse in terms of what's mm -hmm. available in art, in literature, and in cultural and ethnographic studies. So, um, and then it has this unusual modern uh, persona with a very characteristic uh, confirmation and, and image. And, um, you know, and some people were concerned about how the, the modern populations are, are being managed. So um, this was unique in a couple of ways, not only in the size of the study and the number of horses that we examined, but also in the level of genomic analysis that we launched here. So this used a second chip that has, um, well, about 300,000 genomic markers that are, are really good workhorses for us, as well as a number of whole genome sequences. So we had much better resolution to study the Arabian horse genome that we, than we have had um, in the past. And uh, certainly the Arabian horse had a lot to tell us. In a couple of different analyses, we certainly looked at that question of genomic diversity. And um, what we learned is that um, globally, the Arabian horse really has amazing levels of diversity, as big or bigger than any other breed of horse that we could find, um, including some uh, rare and, and unique lineages that had very diverse genomes that suggest that they're sort of uh, much older than some of our, our modern lines of horse, um, particularly as expected around that, the sort of from the Fertile Crescent down to the Middle East around mm -hmm. uh, Bahrain and Syria and in those regions. So there's certainly some very old roots to the Arabian horse there as we had expected. Um, we, we did find some groups of horse where diversity could be an issue, uh, mm -hmm. where very uh, tight breeding practices had probably reduced that genomic diversity down to a, a level where they might start to have problems with those recessive diseases like lavender foal. Mm -hmm. um, the nice thing is, is by documenting the level of diversity we see across the breed 
we could now those those horse owners if they were interested could utilize commercially available products to measure the level of homozygosity in their horses and to better strategize their breedings so that even within their own herd they can optimize the level of genetic diversity this is something we actually worked on in the same project for the arabian oryx which is was the very first animal to recover um, from the endangered species list back up to vulnerable and like the cheetah, once you recover there, you know, you may have lost a lot of genetic diversity you can't get back. But uh, in a similar way, we made the same recommendation for those groups and that if you use your genomic tools, you can better strategize um, how to breed your horses to get the, the pedigree that you need to have to have a marketable animal to, to mm -hmm. help to optimize your chances of getting the traits that you want and to manage your level of genetic diversity. So even for those that had um, sort of a, uh, some inbreeding levels that were a bit high, I think this paper provides an excellent background, probably the best in all horse breeds. I'm a little biased there, but they, I think, now have as good, if not better, uh, a genetic basis to start to use tools to manage the genetic diversity in their group better than a lot of other horse breeds. So that was one interesting finding is that they are really a very, very diverse group. And, you know, honestly, Arabian horse owners really kind of knew this, right? Mm -hmm. You can, you can take you can find an Arabian who excels at endurance. You can find an Arabian who excels at dressage. You can find an Arabian that's an excellent pleasure horse. You can find an Arabian to go cut cattle. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of utility in that that in that horse. It's not just the 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 fancy show horses get all the limelight, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there's a lot to the breed. Some of the other things we certainly we focused on some of the the more striking characteristics of the Arabian horse. Uh, in particular, we we examined the genome for areas that look like they held something that could be particularly useful to or something that the breeders might be valuing and selecting for. Mm -hmm. And uh, we discovered two potentially interesting signals. One that was part of one that was part of um, a region of the genome that contributes to uh, athletic performance. So we need to do more work to pin that down, but it could be one of the tools in the toolbox the Arabian horse uses to gain that amazing athletic endurance in a lot of individuals. And the other one held a region of the genome that in people uh, contributes to eye width. So we know that uh, the Arabian horse is well known for their, their very elegant profile, and it varies across the breed from some fairly standard profiles into some uh, very um, curved, curvaceous profiles. And we think it may be contributing there. But again, we're going to do a lot of work, and we've got partners now um, in Kuwait who are helping us with some morphometrics to better understand the profile of the Arabian horse. So those were two areas that we really wanted to study a little bit more. Um. I wanted to ask you kind of as we close out um, our podcast, just a couple, uh, just a couple short questions here. Um, I was just curious if you do a lot of work with other breed organizations and cross reference research and things like that. Oh, well, we do. I mean, I try not to do too much is, is part of the problem is that I, you know, being a horse gal, I like most of the horses. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm looking out my window here in my paddock and I have four different breeds. Oh, that's <laughs> so cool. Um, 
Yeah, it's a challenge. Um, so we we do we do have some other uh, some of my favorite projects going on. Do work in some of the other breed groups. So here at UF, we have a a fantastic educational opportunity in that we have a very very strong group and an equine track for undergraduate students within the animal sciences major, uh, where you know we we have some of the well again I'm biased, but I would say some of the best faculty in the nation and a fantastic facility um, mm -hmm. and we use primarily quarter horses here it, they quarter horses have a, a strong tie to the state of Florida and the ranching history of the state of Florida you know before Disney it, it, was, <laughs> it was cattle so um, we have a strong tie there for sure and and our uh, so we have a lot of quarter, quarter horses uh, and we breed and raise a full crop of around 20 individuals each year uh, and then those horses go into our undergraduate educational program where undergraduates uh, will uh, work with those animals as weanlings to, to learn the basics of how to handle babies. You know, our, our, there's a generational shift where fewer of us are coming to university off the farm. Mm -hmm. More of us are living in cities. Right. And so mm -hmm. a lot of our students love horses, maybe very experienced horse people in the show ring, but don't know a lot of the, the basics of, of animal care and husbandry. So uh, we give them the opportunity to learn those things um, from the best in the world. So they'll, they'll start those babies as weanlings, uh, paired one on one to one. I think the babies do as much teaching as the instructors do. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> when, when those babies grow up and they're, they're coming on too, we have a second course where the undergraduate students will uh, start those horses in training. So very basics, you know, how to load in a trailer, how to wear mm -hmm. a saddle, how to lunge and work in a pen. And eventually um, they're grown up and they're, by the time they're two years old, our senior students graduate and our senior horses are sold at a big auction, a big party. And they go on to their, their adult lives. But it gives us a fantastic chance to follow those animals over the first two years of their life. So we have a couple of projects on those quarter horses. Uh, my favorite, my favorite favorite as a horse person is the behavioral project because mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're working on quantifying their startle reflex and what we call a spook test. So as mm -hmm. a horsewoman who has been victim to both gravity and the spook <laughs> on multiple occasions, multiple occasions, um, I, I really have a good feeling for the value of this. But if you think mm -hmm. back, you know, if you've been with horses for any period of time, it will not take you long to remember a horse who you hung on to, even though she was lame or no longer could have foals or couldn't jump or, or couldn't compete anymore because they had a fantastic personality and, and maybe they couldn't work at the professional level anymore, but then they were, had such good minds, you could send them on down to start to teach the next generation of people mm -hmm. how to handle horses. So, um, and then I've always known one or two horses who are fantastically talented, but were so unpredictable or mean that you just didn't want to work with them, right? So I, my argument is, is that behavior is the economic trait that trumps all others because if a horse is, is violent or dangerous, you, you can't capitalize on any number, any amount of talent, right? So mm -hmm. our quarter horses are the cornerstone of that study right now because we can study them when they're young and look and see how their reflexes change. Uh, in some preliminary data, my PhD student Barkley Powell presented at a genomics meeting back in January, just before all our scientific meetings were shut down. Mm -hmm. She has quantified that initial startle reflex uh, to be about 60 to 70% genetics. So, wow. so if they're going to jump, 
Yeah, it's a huge amount. But if you think about it, this is all subconscious reactions. You know, they're mm -hmm. not thinking, ah, you know, if someone walks up behind you and gooses you in the ribs, you know, you mm -hmm. don't, you don't think you jump first and then you think. So um, just like in mice and humans, it has a strong genetic component. The second half of that equation then is what do they do? If they do spook, and some of them don't, we had some deadheads, they're quarter horses. Um, but if they do spook, what, what do they do with that? And that's where we're discovering between the babies and the two-year-olds that training can start to intervene. And so we see the environmental component coming on with how they age. So we have babies that do and don't have a strong startle response. And among the strong startlers, some of them learn to, we can still physiologically see that fear, but then they learn to manage it in their behavioral response. So that's a fun one. It's quarter horses because I got quarter horses, um, but they make a good study subject for this because they're pretty diverse too. Um, the, other, the other big group we're working with right now are sport horses. Um, of, of many types. Um, the, one of the other, my favorite economic traits in the horse is how they move. So we're working on some high throughput phenotyping that relies on machine learning to analyze digital videos of how sport horses move. It's, we've got, oh my gosh, I think 600 individual videos right now and still counting. I'm gonna go in two weeks to try to gather some more while wearing a mask. Um, and we're using some advanced computational methods to try to better to better understand those. And the nice thing there is, while I'm interested in it from a performance positive side, mm -hmm. our veterinary collaborators love it because it's going to be a nice um, quantitative tool for assessing things like lameness. You know, right now the human eye is still the best tool we have for assessing lameness, and it takes a long time to learn that skill. And so, if we had sort of a uniform ruler to help teach human eyes, and then also to help help find things that may be too subtle for the human eye to see a nice kind of super goggles for our veterinarians mm -hmm. so they can flag something that they may be interested in. And then I, as a geneticist, hopefully get to play with this toy to learn more about the genetics that contributes to those types of reflexes. So still sort of a a nervous system kind of kind of trait. But those are my two favorite projects right now. Um, we work with lots of different breeds at different points of time, have huge, lots of work with the American Paint Horse too. I can't forget them. Um, I do a lot of work on coat color and, and they have a fantastic model for how it certainly contributes to the value of their horse. So they may be actually at the forefront of starting to use genomics uh, for mm. genomic assisted selection to start to plan those full crops. Um, so lot, lots of irons in the, in the fire, so to speak, for sure. <laughs> that is really, really cool. Um, that is so interesting, especially the sport horse um, study that you're doing on, uh, you know, movement and lameness. And I was doing like a little like, oh my gosh, yes, with the lameness thing, because it's so hard <laughs> to, to spot that. It, it is, is so hard. Mm -hmm. It's such a, it's- It is very, very hard. Experience. It's, yes. It's oh exactly exactly we're, we're hoping this would have some telemedicine applications too, where you would be able to capture the film in, in the field, get it analyzed and send it digitally to your veterinarian, which was very timely like I wish I had it ready to pilot right now because I have a lot of veterinarians who are trying to limit the amount of time they spend with that social distancing mm -hmm. with their horse owners. So um, some telemedicine applications there would be would be really, really great. And especially something light enough that you could uh, record your horse many times and mm -hmm. you can see because every horse moves differently. The question is, is it functional or is it a problem? Right. So if it gave you a way to set a baseline, then you can know, oh, nope, that's just how Tuesday goes or wait a minute. 
this is different for this horse. Maybe we need to take Lexo. That's my dream. I, I got, got uh, some, a lot of work to do with my engineering friends <laughs> to try to, to, get it, to get it done, but uh, we, are, we are going for it. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. And then, as you know, there is a very large community of sport horse uh, folks with Arabians. Um, just kind of plays to the fact that Arabians really can do anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they do everything. I know for certain I have a couple high level Anglos in my, in my video database already, already. And yeah, actually I know a couple other Arabs that are in there too. I catch them all the time. Places you never expect to find them. <laughs> well, I could honestly probably talk to you for another two hours. You are just such a wealth of knowledge and what you're doing is just so interesting and so critical to our horse industry. Um, with advancing the science and advancing how we look at our horses and, you know, taking it right down to the root of genetics. So the work that you're doing is so cool. Um, so I could definitely talk to you for much longer, but <laughs> I don't want to take all your time. <laughs> so before we conclude, I just wanted to know if you had any um, closing thoughts that you'd like to provide. Is there anything that you wanted to um, say something about that we just didn't get to throughout the duration of this of the podcast? Oh, well, sure. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm always happy to talk, to talk horses. And I usually have something interesting in the genetics pot cooking up. <laughs> um, always have, always have to thank my supporting horse owners and groups like AHF that helped to provide funding because um, we wouldn't get to do much without that help. We definitely rely on that leg up every single day. Uh, if you want to learn more, I am uh, always is working on new educational horizons and one of the things that we've done is we have an online short course in equine genetics. It uh, started out of my undergraduate course that I was offering and I realized you know what we can we can uh, smooth this out make it a little more palatable and uh, make it available to horse owners. So uh, if you go to ufequinegenetics.org we have a tab there that talks about online courses. They are available for anyone and particularly if you're still in a quarantined area and are looking for more online opportunities to help um, diffuse the boredom. This is an excellent one. It's an excellent one. So it's going to be a three-part series. Uh, right now, course one is open. Uh, we've actually run it for about two years, but the recent change we did this spring is we, we um, put on some online tools so that students can start at any point in time. So if you enroll today, you start today and you have about six weeks to work through the first uh, part of the, the um, three-part series. We used to run it twice a year. We had participants, oh gosh, we had last time we ran it, I think we had from five different countries around the world. And they get opportunities to talk to one another, things like that, but it was really mm -hmm. hard. Horse people have busy schedules. So we changed this so that you could start the course whenever you want. So the second part of the three-part series, we're gonna open up here really soon, really soon. I was just talking to my PhD uh, recent graduate about helping out with that. And we have a third part on deck. Uh, in the warm-up ring, just about ready to go. Um, that's going to be more of the advanced performance level type of thing. So if you find genetics interesting, which most horse owners should, because you got a great big thousand pounds of, of uh, DNA with lots of stuff to teach you right there, um, <laughs> then, then you might consider, then you might consider taking the course. And um, we've really done as much as we can to try to make it very accessible to your to your average horse owner. We've had students take the course from 13 years of age to over 80 years of age. I won't tell you how much over 80, but uh, they've, they've all done pretty well. 
<laughs> that's awesome. I'll provide all those links to to that in our show notes here, so you can just find a uh, click it and then just go right to the site. And I'll provide links to your work as well, so people can check out check out what you've been doing. And then, where can people follow your work or find your work? Um, do you have like a social media, like a Facebook page or anything like that, where people can check out your work? <laughs> Yeah, we do. We have a Facebook page, although admittedly I'm a little old school and I struggle with Facebook. <laughs> I have some talented graduate students, but you can always find us. You can always find us at the UF webpage and right now email um, if you're interested and in, in, have a question. Uh, email is the best way to reach us. We had some folks trying to call with some some critical issues and it was a real challenge because we can't necessarily even get to our phones at our desk. So that's been a, a bit tough. But yeah, you can always email and then um, we try to put out blasts on social social media, particularly through IFAS and IFAS Communications. That's our uh, agricultural uh, college there at UF. Thank you so much, Dr. Brooks. I uh, had such a great time speaking with you and learning more about what you do and how you are involved in the Arabian horse breed. So that was a really great discussion. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. No problem. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Arabian Horse Connection, the official podcast of the Arabian Horse Association, where we showcase the diversity of the Arabian horse community from industry titans, backyard heroes, and amateur contenders. Do you think you might have content for the Arabian Horse Connection podcast? We would love to hear from you. Please send your suggestions to marketing at arabianhorses.org. We'll see you next time, folks.